All right, let me pray for us. We'll get it started. Oh, man. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for these dear friends and uh, opportunity to gather together and read your word and learn from it this morning. Uh, for some of us, this might be new, uh, getting into God's word, reading it, understanding it. Uh, for some of us, we've done it maybe for a while. But either way, we need your help in understanding it and applying it to our lives. Uh, so we ask that your spirit would help us figure out <laughs> what to do with your word and how to work it into our lives and how it matters for living today as your word says it matters. So help us this morning. Uh, speak through me, Lord, please, and um, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand and apply. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here at Sunrise Community Church, we believe that all of the Bible is God's word to us, and so all of it relates to life. So most of the time, we teach straight through a book of the Bible, highlighting truth in such a way that it helps us apply it to real life. That's the idea. So right now, we're teaching through this book, 1 John, which is kind of towards the back of the Bible, and we're going to try to finish about two and a half long chapters worth over the next three weeks. To do it, we're going to have to focus on admittedly major points and sort of big picture thematic shifts All right, in the writing. Uh, this morning's passage represents a big shift, a big picture shift that John wants to take us on. Today's passage, as we get further into chapter 4 and chapter 5, you're going to hear big words, exciting words, words like overcome, words like greater, words like perfected, words like Victory, words like confidence. Who likes those words? Right, pretty good, huh? Not too bad. If you have a relationship with God by trusting your life to Jesus Christ, you will begin to overcome. You'll begin to overcome idols. You'll begin to overcome things you're in bondage to. You'll begin to overcome sinful habits. This is important, right? Because while we all are grateful for God's grace and mercy and His patience towards us and understand each of us still are a mess and have a long ways to go, we also want to know that Jesus is just waiting until heaven to change us. Right? We want to know that this Christianity stuff really works. And put more simply, we want to kick some butt and take some names right? in this life. We want this to happen. I mean, at least some names, a couple names, a couple idols, a couple selfish habits. And we're encouraged here by John. We're supposed to be encouraged that yes, there will be overcoming. There will be some conquering in this life, which is encouraging. John says this happens in the Christian life, and this morning we find out a couple ways to know that you're overcoming, that you're conquering in this life. As we open our Bibles, we're going to see that in 1 John 3.11. So open your Bibles there, 1 John 3, verse 11. You can find that on page 878 if you want to borrow one of the Bibles we have in these chair pockets. Page 878. And we're going to recall that John writes according to two rules he finds at work, living as a citizen in God's kingdom. 1 John 3.11, we're going to look at that in a moment. But the first rule he kind of writes according to is you often return to the same mistakes, sin, idols, and thus need to be taught the same lesson. 
All right, hence the circular pattern of this image we've said to represent 1 John, this telephone cord idea that you repeat, you go back to a lot of the same mistakes in your life, a lot of the same habits, a lot of the same idols, and so you've got to learn the same lessons. And so John brings us back to those lessons again and again. So if you read today's passage, you're going to note some 1 John reruns. All right, it's tempting to keep flipping the channel when you get to a rerun, right? True here in John as well. You're going to get to these verses, you're going to think, I've heard this before, John. Let's move on. I'll move on too quickly because the reality of life is we often make the same mistakes, indulge in the same idols, and so it's important to learn and relearn the same lessons. I want you to note if you've heard this before as we read, starting in 1 John 3.11, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 6 today. Let's look at this here. First, we see John say, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. And we've heard this before. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 24. Twice we hear it there. We've heard this before. Love one another. Love your brother. We've heard this before. Another rerun here. Here, here's how John says it here. This is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. His brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down the life, our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, he's his brother in need, it closes his heart to give him. How does God's love abide in him? Love one another, love brother. We see this also back in uh, verse 7 of chapter 2, verse 10 of chapter 2. We're going to see it again. To give you a little preview, a little trailer for next week in chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, the amazing, sort of paramount chapter in the New Testament on love. So, again, a rerun here on love. And then we get to verse 19. By this we shall know. In this phrase, by this we shall know, we have heard before. And I want to come back to this, it's repeated five times. In this passage, he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and we are sure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. This idea of confidence before God to ask whatever we wish in prayer. We're going to come to that in chapter 5. This is commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments and abides in Him and He in them. Now, here, this idea of keeping the commandments, we've seen also. All right, we see it here in verse 22, verse 24, but we saw it, chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, I gave the analogy of the stacks of things I have in my house and whether it's a stack of stuff like my phone, my keys, my wallet, and I bring it when I need that stack. And I have an exercise or or basketball stack. When I go play basketball, I have a stack of clothing and 
you know, gear and this sort of thing and, and, and sneakers I put on. I take that when I need that. But do we keep God's word with us? We talked about that. Same theme we see repeated here. Finally, we see another, actually two more, abiding. We see the same theme of abiding. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandment abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This idea of how do we continue on in the Christian life? We've started this thing, but it's hard, and it gets grimy, and it gets difficult, and we've got to fight every day. How do we know we're going to abide and we're going to continue on in the Christian life? John repeats that again here. He repeated it back in chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, chapter 2, verse 27, three times there. Chapter 2, verse 27. And finally, the sixth, sorry, sixth theme John has a rerun of here is the Antichrist. Oh yes, you know it, you love it, the Antichrist here. Verse 4, or chapter 4, let's read here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from God, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and spirit of error. This idea of the Antichrist pops back up here. So, I'm pointing all these things out because they're reruns. That's important to note. Also important to note, you get this classic, by this shall we know. Here's how you know that you know. Because one of John's main themes in this whole book is how do you know you're really a Christian? How do you really know you trust Jesus and are going to have eternal life one day? And it's pretty important here in this passage because he repeats it five times. Verse 14, verse 16, verse 19, verse 24, and chapter 4, verse 2. Here's how you know. Here's how you know. Here's how you know. We saw this before. Chapter 2, verse 3. I began that sermon with this idea of how do I know that I know? And we all go through that doubt in our life where we wake up and we say, how do I know this thing is real? And it's real not only sort of existentially, but in my life. I believe John is combining these, this phrase five times here and brings together all these classic themes, these reruns, all in one place because he's anticipating a turning point. He's saying, look, we've covered these topics. We've covered these issues. All right, here's how you know. Now, here's how you know you've overcome. Here's how you know you're getting victory in your life. You're actually knocking down these things. You're kicking some butt. You're taking some names in the Christian life. And that gets to John's second rule I mentioned he writes according to. We grow and we ultimately overcome idols, areas of sin by this examination assurance combination. So we've come every Sunday and we've seen in one passage John assures us you are children of God now. And one day you'll be just like Jesus And then other times we come, and John says, yeah, but are you producing fruit in your life? Are you changing? Have you kept God's Word really with you? Are you living in the light, or are you living a double life? 
And that's how Jesus works. So Jesus is holy. He's awesome. He's huge. He's immense. He is glorious. And we're not. And so we come before Him. He exposes those things in our lives. But He's also gracious enough, loving enough, to give us a new heart and begin to change us and make us like those things that He is. He assures us, I'm going to get you there. I love you. And you're with me. And that's how we overcome. That's why in the Bible you find God compared, Jesus compared to two animals, a lion and a lamb. He's like a lion. He'll tear apart anything that gets between you and him. And that's going to hurt. And that's going to be hard. It's going to require some examination, some challenge. But like a lamb, when you get to him, he's merciful and tender and loving. So we get this phrase, how can we know phrase in John's reruns, but we get two new twists that show John wants to move us into victory, into overcoming greater. He is greater. See that in chapter 3, verse 20, chapter 4, verse 4, and we get this other phrase, overcome. You have overcome them, which is such an exciting phrase. This is where John will say we need to get to or are already getting to. Starting to overcome. So here's what I hope we discovered this morning. We've looked at the bulk of these verses, seen that John wants to repeat these things. Here's what I hope we discovered this morning. How to know when you are overcoming two of the great rivals to loving God. At least John says they're pretty big rivals. He finds this important. The rivals of self-condemnation, Self-condemnation and glitzier, but also devilish messages. The messages we hear every day of our lives that are attractive, that are tasty, that sound better than the message we get in the Bible initially, but aren't true. So, let's do that this morning. That's where John's leading us. That's where we're going to go. You know you're overcoming self-condemnation when you can distinguish between, you can tell the difference between the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit convicting you, and a condemning heart. You can tell the difference between the Holy Spirit convicting you and a condemning heart. In these verses, we find the words, here's how you can reassure your heart. Doesn't that sound nice and comforting? This is the warm blanket you know, from our childhood that we drooled into. It's the reassurance feels nice, but I first need to start out with when you should not feel reassured before God. The Bible talks very clearly about times we shouldn't feel reassured. We want to feel reassured, but we shouldn't feel reassured when sin, neglect, and difference becomes no big deal. Nobody's perfect, we'll say, right? Except course, Jesus. But then again, the Bible says that Jesus is the only comparison that actually matters in our life. How are you compared to Jesus? Okay, I don't live up to that. Well, you need some help. Or we say, man, you know, I can't help everyone. That person's got to help themselves too. I can't help everyone. Well, are you helping anyone? It's when these things become not a big deal that we shouldn't be reassuring our hearts. Also, You shouldn't feel reassured when you have to reassure your heart to get on with the busyness of life. You don't have time to feel guilt, shame, 
We don't have time to dwell on couldas and shouldas. Because you got a full-time job, or you got kids, or you got both, <laughs> right? So I just can't feel that. God loves me, I'm moving on. Well, sometimes that guilt is coming from God. Now, he doesn't mean to keep you in that guilt. He'll get you out of it. But sometimes it starts from God. And just because you don't have time to feel it doesn't mean that's, oh, well, I'm cool, I'm good, move on with life. Thirdly, you shouldn't feel reassured before God when you express regret because you got caught or just because you're experiencing the natural consequences of sin. Um, it's easy to feel bad when you mess up because you got caught. You got your hand caught in the cookie jar. You know that feeling? Uh, there's the child version of that and the adult version of that. But also, you're experiencing the natural consequences of sin, or like I call, like to call the sin hangover. Right? Uh, it's the natural consequence of what you have done. Sometimes it's a real hangover. There's also other kinds of sin we indulge in where you experience the natural consequences of it, and it stinks, and then you feel bad. That can also be a dangerous place because ultimately you don't really ever change if you just feel bad because things kind of stink for you. Rather, when God comes into your life through Jesus, you start to feel bad because you offended your Father who loves you. You offended a holy God. And so Paul puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. He says that godly grief, godly sorrow produces repentance. It produces a real change, which leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. The idea here being that if you just feel bad because you're experiencing the natural consequences for sin or because you got caught, that won't really change your life. If you feel bad because you want to please your father and you failed, that starts to change your life because you're forgiven. He's accepting of you and you begin to want to please him even more. Fourthly, you shouldn't feel reassured because you say you're sorry because you have an immediate need for God to meet. You ever done that in your life? Lord, I'm sorry for everything I've done. Please do this for me and I will change. Anyone ever prayed that prayer before? Lord, please... If you just help me now, I will change my life. It will be different, I promise, I swear, it's going to be different. You know, in, in moments I, I've been there, before I knew Jesus, I was like, I prayed that prayer, didn't really change my life. Um, there's a really telling moment in the history of God's people. They entered the promised land, they grew fat and happy. Because they got lots of great stuff. It was the good food, the choicest fruit, all those things that you want in life. Well, they stopped relying on God. And once a generation, they just completely ignored God, served other gods for like a decade at a time. Like any good dad, he punished them to help them, to help them return to him. He punished them. He said, look, I need to get your attention. Life is better with me. Come back to me. So a lot of times what he did, he punished them through military action, through oppression, and this is what happened here in the book of Judges. God's people went through like a year of oppression. And here's the phrase, I want to, here's, the, here's the verse I want to share with you. Judges 10, 15, and 16. Listen to this. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. God, we've sinned. We're sorry. We're sorry, God. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. You hear that? Lord, we messed up. Just please help us now. 
If you help us now, look, we're going to put away, look what it says in verse 16, we're going to put away the foreign gods, we're going to serve you, but God's not like stupid. <laughs> he's, he's a father who kind of knows everything. He's seen this before. Look, I've been a father for like thousands of years now. I know, like, I know what this is. And so he becomes impatient, the Bible says, over the misery of Israel because he knows they're changing just because, look, you're going to answer this prayer. You're going to deliver us today. In all of these cases, if, this, if you find yourself there, I've been there, I know this. I pray that even now the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will convict you, will show you, you know what? That's wrong. I shouldn't feel reassured if I've just treat my life as no big deal the way I live. If I've admittedly just want to get on with the busyness of life, so I tell myself everything's okay. Or because I'm just experiencing the junk that comes along with me messing up. I pray that the Spirit convicts you. And that's what the Spirit does. John 16, 8. Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth would come, He would convict the world of guilt in regards to sin, in regards to righteousness, in regards to judgment. So He would convict people. He would show them that, hey, you need Jesus. You're not right with Him. You need help. And then he would point people to Jesus. God never leaves you in your guilt, but he has to start you there. You have to see that you fall short of who God is. And, his standard. and then he brings you there. But you've got to start there. And I pray that he does that. He shows you your need for a Savior. Usually when you sense a pang of guilt to your conscience, it's the Holy Spirit saying, you need Jesus, you need a Savior. But there are times when it's not God. And it's just you condemning yourself. It's just you being hard on yourself. Self-condemnation. How do you know the difference, though? It feels just as bad. It feels just as cruddy, right? How do you know the difference? That's where 1 John comes in. It gives us a brilliant insight. Let's look at that. 1 John 3, 17-21. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So that's the context here. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth, that we belong to the we are people of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. Whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. And if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Our hearts condemn us by telling us, I could do more. Right? I could do more. But the problem is there's always something more. A little bit like when Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. There will always be more you can do to help others. There will always be more. And yet we still feel this feeling, I feel, but I could do more. I think that's what he's getting at because he's talking here about the idea of loving indeed, of reaching out to those in need. And, we, and some of you, you, you're doing it. You're responding to God's love for you by loving others. But you have that feeling, yeah, but I'm not doing enough. There's always more. Let me give you a few examples of this just to make this real for our lives today. Um, our friend, 
Kelly Campos um, and our community group. Uh, she and Omar Campos uh, host our group. And she was talking the other day about how she had some friends who had experienced a close um, loss, a close death in their lives. And she felt guilty. She just kept saying, I feel really bad. I haven't, I haven't contacted them. I feel awful. Should I do that? Should I not? But, you know, she's telling us this, as she's telling us this, as she has worked hard to prepare her home that night to host us. She has demonstrated amazing hospitality to us. And she asked the question, am I wrong? Or is that kind of checking in with people? Is that, kind of, is that a gift? You might see where I'm going with that. Even though she is loving us, she is showing hospitality, and yet she's asking the question, but should I be thinking of somewhere else, someone else? Should I be doing something else somewhere far off? I'll give you another example. I'm going to come back to all these examples, by the way. My friend, Pastor Rich, uh, he was talking to me this week about he saw a clearly ailing helper. He drove by. After he drove by her, you know, half mile, he felt badly, so he went back to pick her up. She said she'd already had a ride. So he just drove on. Then he felt bad because he felt like he should have prayed for her, right? So he wanted to do the double U-turn. And then he's like, you know, he just asked me, you know, should I have gone back? I feel like I should have gone back. It's another example. Third example, um, myself and Katie. Uh, We had presented to us the need to adopt an unwanted baby recently. And we almost did. (laughs) The Lord uh, helped us willingly step out. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, the door shut, the opportunity shut. Uh, the mother-to-be was um, kicked off island despite a doctor's note. She was kicked off island. Um, now, should we have sought out a permit for her? So we'd asked a bunch of people, or would that have been forcing it? Do you see what I'm saying? You step out in situations And so many of you I know, you love the Lord and you love people. You respond to His love by trying to love others. Should there be more I can do? Well, the great thing here about John and this brilliant verse, I mean, it's so unique to the New Testament. John gives us this truth to combat self-condemnation. First of all, he says, look guys, God is greater than your hearts. When you respond to his love by loving others, God is greater than your hearts. He is more kind, more thoughtful, more concerned. The psalmist in, in Psalm 139, 17 and 18 says this beautiful verse. He says, how great are your thoughts concerning me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count the number of thoughts that you have about me, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. Think about that. As God exists, the thoughts he has towards you are, are greater than the grains of sand. You walk seven mile beach, think about that next time. And then apply that to other people. Other people you maybe feel like you could have helped more, you should have helped more, could have done more. But friends, God knows that. He loves them. He's thinking about them. He also is thinking about taking care of them. There's a God who's greater than even our own thoughts and our own hearts. And also, he has gifted hearts. He has gifted hearts in his entire body of Christ, near and far. It's pretty cool if you go, I don't have time to go through this, but in Galatians 6, 1 through 5, 
also talked about this in our community group this last week. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 talks about two kinds of things we carry in the Christian life. One is the burdens of others, but those are meant to be temporary. But also, we're supposed to carry a load, a personal load, like a military backpack. And the idea that Paul gives there in Galatians 6, 5 is like the pack that God has packed for you. You know, like you're on your way on this journey, and this, these are the things you need to serve God and to serve others. And the responsibility we have is to use what's in that pack. That's what we're responsible for. Not to carry each person's burdens forever. Yes, carry them. Yes, love. But not forever. The pack, the things, the, the talents, the time He's given you is what we're responsible for. So when you're using your gifts and talents to faithfully serve the persons in front of you and you still feel badly about not acting on behalf of those who are nowhere near you at the time, it is likely your heart condemning you, not the Holy Spirit. So we're given this great truth. God is greater than our hearts, but also there's a great truth that He knows everything. God knows everything. He knows every detail about the situation. He knows every person that we could not possibly know. He knows every detail about their life, and He knows every person. So in our situation with adoption, we didn't know at first that a pregnant woman, the pregnant woman who was carrying this child, was on an island illegally. So we were going through this process and praying, you know, should we, should we ask a bunch of people, take out a permit for this woman, that sort of thing? Maybe you need help from her? We didn't know is that she was on island illegally at that time and thus didn't apply for an extension with immigration right away when the permit had expired. Had we searched for a person to take that permit, it probably would have been in vain. It would have been a waste of time and potentially even harmed others we brought into the process. You see what I'm saying? God knows those details. He knows everything, John says here. And he'll work that out. When you're questioning yourself, man, I feel like I could do more. I feel like I could... I can make this happen. A lot of times it's just your heart condemning you. And you can tell the difference between the Holy Spirit's conviction and self-condemning heart. You are reassured and then you have confidence before God. You walk in confidence. There's that great confidence you walk with knowing, you know what? That person is trying to guilt me. But it's not true. Or, I mean, I have these thoughts that I could do more, I could be more. You know what? That's not real. It's my heart trying to condemn me. God's greater than that. God's bigger than that. And you walk in confidence, but still with perfect humility, because you know at any time, wow, that's the Holy Spirit convicting me of real sin, of real weakness, of real guilt. It's amazing humble confidence you can walk with in the Christian life. So that's one thing we can overcome. And the other thing John mentions we can overcome in this life, begin to overcome in this life, is glitzier messages. And you know you've overcome these glitzier messages when you insist on bringing God down to earth. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment. But you can insist on bringing God down to earth. The message of God in the flesh and crucified will overcome initially more tasty messages. Let's face it, if you just think of it on the surface, God becoming a man, that's weird enough. That's, there's no other message in the world that proclaims that. That's weird. And then the idea that he died on a wooden pole. 
It's strange, it's bizarre, it's weird, but we say it changes people's lives and gives them eternity. There are nicer messages than that. There are more tasty, more palatable messages. Messages that are easier to digest. And frankly, let let us live our lives the way we want to. That's what we're talking about here. Let's see how John puts it here, verses uh, 1 through 6 of chapter 4. First he says, Beloved, look at this, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything that you hear. Don't believe every claim with God's name attached to it. And we should know this by now, right? And it goes beyond the crazy people, right, who hold people up in communes and tell them to drink Kool-Aid that's really poison, right? It goes beyond those people on television and radio and our everyday lives. You can't believe every claim with God's name attached. Someone was speaking to Katie and I this week of a friend who is always saying, a spirit of God. The spirit of God told me this, that. They told me like who to vote for. They told me, you know, which sauce to choose for my McNuggets. You know, like he told the Spirit of God is telling me everything, you know, what temperature to turn the oven to. Recently they told this person, God told me to choose this nanny. And once you know it, of course, that nanny that they chose was fasting. To to be chosen. But also wouldn't you know it, that she fired that nanny after one week, right? I mean, so it's like, well, what do you conclude? What God's will is against long-term nannies? I don't think so. No, I mean, what we have to understand, friends, is that when people rightly claim to speak for God, they do so with the Scriptures boldly in one hand, but with humility and applying it in the other hand. They understand God's Word, they know God's Word, and because of that, they say, you know, I, I wonder if God is saying this. I know he's saying this. I know he's saying this. And I wonder if, if how he wants to apply this to my life is this. I wonder if he's urging me towards this. John goes on to say, test the spirits to see if they are from God. When you test these things. We were told a couple weeks ago, have a basic foundational knowledge of the Bible's message plus the anointing of the Spirit to help us. We won't stay there long. Finally, he goes on to say, many false prophets have gone into the world. Rarely does anyone actually believe he or she's a false prophet. Right? They don't wear name badges. They don't give you business cards to have false prophet going across it. That means you've got to beware. Here we get to the central verse, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now this is important. Let me give you the background. John's dealing with basically a few growing strains of heresy in the church. Um, I'll just give you the names real quick. Gnosticism, Docetism, and a guy named Serentheus. Alright, you don't need to remember that, but that's there for you if you want to look them up later. And in some ways, the Serentheus guy is my favorite because it's kind of a cool story. Just <laughs> an interesting side note of history. John obviously thought this guy was pretty dangerous in his teaching. He had a lot of influence because when he entered the same bathhouse one day as John, like John was there and he entered the bathhouse, they saw each other and John like ran away, apparently with his tunic on, like just ran out of the bathhouse. You can imagine being in like maybe a steam room or something. You see a guy come in like, whoa, 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 and he runs away, he just runs out. You know, and that, that kind of scene. Because he thought that this guy, his teaching was so false and so dangerous that God could actually reach down at any time and strike him dead. 
So he just, he just ran away. I just think that's kind of cool that he did that. But anyway, um, all of these teachings had in common the idea that the spirit is superior to physical matter. The spiritual things of the world are superior to physical matter, and thus the Christ of Jesus is ultimately separate from Jesus. Jesus is the human. The Christ is the anointing of God. And these two shall not meet. In practice, this meant keeping one's spiritual life separate from his or her earthly life. So you have this vague idea of a spiritual, spirituality, but it doesn't affect your earthly life, really. And so you start to see the relevance of that today. People say, oh yeah, but I'm spiritual. It's the idea of keeping God in the spirit realm and relegating God to the heavenlies, separate from the physical grind and dailiness of life. That's why this matters. I know this passage is, is an interesting one. Because he says, wait a minute, but here's how you know every spirit is not from God that people say that Jesus has not come in the flesh. Well, how does that matter to me today? We start to see. It comes from this idea that you keep God separate from your physical daily life. He's in the spiritual realm. He's in the heavenlies. He's up there. I'm down here. Oh, but God is very earthly. There are three reasons why God had to be a human. And you also see why people don't like that. God had to become a human. And it affects all of our earthly life. First, God's initial and ultimate purpose for humans is for them to rule the world. He created us to rule the world, to reign over his creation. This is stated clearly in Genesis 1.26, where we're told we're made in God's image and to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air of all creation. But Genesis goes on to describe how man gave over his rulership of this world. He forfeited, he gave it over to him who tempted him, namely Satan who is described in the New Testament, Ephesians 2, as the God or the ruler of this world. And we see that here in our passage this morning, chapter 4, verse 3 of 1 John, that the spirit of the Antichrist is now in the world already. He's working, and he's working, and he's working. He wants to own the world. He wants to keep the world from us. And he'll do anything to make that happen. God's promise still stands. He still says that one day we will become this kingdom of priests ruling with God. God's promise was made to man as a man, so it's got to be a man who fulfills God's purpose and promise so that one day we can all rule with God. But it can't be man as he is because a perfect king like God can't share, he can't trust rule with imperfect royalty. That's why Hebrews 2, 6-8 describes how man's destiny to rule is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect ruler. He is the perfect earthly ruler. What does this mean? Not that we acknowledge King Jesus, but we see his example of rulership of this world, and so we can insist, insist that God matters to this earth. He matters for how I exercise authority and responsibility now. Secondly, 
Second reason God had to become a human being is to humanly live the perfect life I couldn't and so become the only possible substitute to die the death I deserved. Jesus is described as the second Adam. He lived the life Adam was supposed to but did not. Describe that in 1 Corinthians 15 45. He lived the perfect life and God demands a perfect life like the one Jesus lived to be substituted for a corrupted one. That's the entire basis of God's entire justice system in the Old Testament that we see. Perfect life substituted for a corrupted one that brings forgiveness. And that's why Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus had to become human. Therefore, Jesus Christ had to become like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's that word propitiation again. By becoming a human being, living a perfect life, he can be the perfect substitute that takes on God's punishment towards sin. That's what propitiation means. Satisfying the wrath and justice of God. Jesus became the perfect substitute. So he can exist. Not only does that matter for eternal life, but he's the perfect substitute for this life. He's the perfect substitute on earth for sin. He is better than any temptation. He's better than any lust, better than any idol, better than any reason we might claim for being superior to someone else. He is better. And so he matters for this life, not just to buy my way into eternal life. I'll just stop there with two reasons. Okay. Now the counter arguments are strong. And they will be listened to. First John 4 verse 5 says, This message of these messengers in the world, that they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and guess what? No surprise, the world listens to them. Now, people will couch all of these messages in the world that will be listened to with religion. They'll couch it in faith. They'll couch it in spirituality and say that it can help. It can play a part to help you live a balanced life. So make no mistake, you'll hear these messages associated with God, but they are not God who comes down to this earth, the real message of Christianity. A God who matters to the life we live now. They'll say things like, oh yeah, give God a slice of your life, but you can run and rule the majority of life on your own. They'll say, hey, look, look, you don't owe anyone. You don't need a substitute. You're good enough. You're perfect the way you are. Like Lady Gaga said, right? I was born this way. Right? She goes on in that little ditty to quote her mom, Mother Gaga, I presume, by saying, God made you perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. You don't need a substitute. Be who you are, do what you want to do, live for yourself. You don't need a substitute for sin, indulgence, idols. Hmm. That sounds a lot more attractive, doesn't it? You don't owe anyone. You don't need to change. You don't need a substitute. You can really run and rule the majority of your life. Listen, friends, the true message but this true message seems less attractive at first. But its author 
has powerful connections. Look at verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan and the spirit of the Antichrist. And that's what it really comes down to. Is the message a little less attractive initially, a little less tasty on the surface? Yeah. So it really comes down to, do I trust the author behind this message of salvation? When I share it, when I talk about it, when I live it, do I believe the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world? And that because of that, this gospel message can outdo all competing, all initially more tasty, all initially more attractive, half-breed messages because of the author who is behind it. Let's pray. Father, there are two enemies of the faith at work that we can begin to overcome by trusting and abiding in Jesus. The first is our own selves, our own voice and lies. We tell ourselves that what we've done is not enough. We could always do more, even though we're responding to your love by loving others. Help us remember that you are greater than our hearts and that you know everything. Reassure us with that truth so we might be reassured that we are of the truth. And Father, this other enemy, this message that echoes through so many strains on the television, the radio, Facebook messages posted by Christian friends and that try to separate the life we live on this earth from spirituality. But we have a God who decided to become the flesh in Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. That means that you're a better substitute. That means that the way we use our own rulership, our own Authority or own responsibility in this world matters because you came to this earth. You lived the life we lived. And you died the death we deserved. Help us then insist on bringing God down to this earth that because of Jesus, he can redeem, he can change, he can influence every aspect of our lives to the point where we overcome. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.